Hi, I'm Nathan Hunt. I'm an environmental attorney at Thompson Hine. Welcome to the Environmental Laws Podcast, where Thompson Hine attorneys and industry experts usually discuss timely and relevant environmental health and safety topics. Today, we're going to deviate a little bit from that script and talk about the Love Canal disaster. This is part one of a two-part podcast. In part one, we're going to take the Wayback Machine to the 1890s to meet William Love. William Love was a man who dreamed of building a perfect, sprawling metropolis near Niagara Falls, New York. I'm guessing he would have never in a million years thought he'd be forever linked to America's most notorious contaminated site and the passage of CERCLA, which is the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, instead of his shining city on a hill that he planned to build. In part two, we will cover the environmental contamination that made Love Canal a national news story in the 1970s and led to the passage of CERCLA. So before we get to the story of William Love, I wanted to provide a high-level overview of CERCLA for anybody out there who's not familiar with it. I'm assuming most folks listening to this podcast, because of its environmental uh, genre, if you will, are probably familiar with CERCLA. But for those of you who aren't, CERCLA is also known as Superfund. It's a federal statute that was signed into law in 1980 during the last days of the Carter administration. And it's been amended several times thereafter. It provides a means to pay for the cleanup of historic disposal sites containing hazardous substances. CERCLA holds current and past owners and operators of disposal sites, companies that arrange to have waste sent to such sites, and companies that transported waste to these sites and selected them as the disposal site, strictly liable for cleanup costs of the sites. Here's an example. If I'm a company and I arrange to have hazardous substances disposed at a site, which later becomes subject to a CERCLA response action, my company can be held legally responsible under CERCLA for all of the site cleanup costs, even if I only send a small amount of waste to the site. Now, I have the recourse of suing other responsible parties, such as current or former owners of the site or other companies like me who sent waste to the site for disposal to make them pay their fair share of the cleanup costs. CERCLA's broad strict liability scheme was necessary to create a large pool of viable responsible parties to pay to clean up these historical disposal sites, which oftentimes had been abandoned uh, or had been closed for decades and there was really no one immediately tied to the site who was around who could pay to clean it up. Or maybe the company that owned the site was defunct and couldn't pay for it anyway. But you now could turn to folks who sent waste there, who arranged to have waste sent there to pay for the cleanup because they contributed to the problem. And if there was no viable party to pay for the cleanup, US EPA could use money from the super fund to pay for the cleanup, which is essentially a fund that is designed, at least was intended to be uh, used to pay for the costs of cleaning up sites when viable parties were not available to do so. A fun fact about the Superfund is that the petroleum industry funded the Superfund originally in exchange for petroleum products not 
to be considered hazardous substances and subject to CERCLA. So they were able to essentially avoid liability by funding the Superfund initially. So that's CERCLA in a nutshell. Let's talk about William Love. William Love arrived in Niagara Falls, New York in the early 1890s, and he had this ambitious plan to build a perfect city, a city that he felt would rival the greatest cities in the world regarding things like size and population, culture, just about any metric you can think of. It's not clear you know, what William Love was necessarily doing before he arrived in Niagara Falls. Some people think he was in Tennessee or maybe in Chicago. I think he used to tell a story that he like led a, a group of settlers across Oklahoma at one point in his life, but uh, no one really knows what he was up to before Niagara Falls. What they do know is that he was a smooth operator. He may have been a naive dreamer too, and maybe he was a swindler. That's all subject to debate, but there is no question he had the gift of persuasion because his idea was so ambitious, the city he wanted to build. And most people who hear the story today would say, this is crazy, it's never gonna work. But at the time, he had a lot of support. He had, he was a, at least a regional figure, if not a nationally known figure. And they, he had government support, the governor of New York was behind the project, the media loved it, they wrote stories left and right about the project. And just generally the public was behind it. They thought it was a great idea. He was able to get funding for his project. As we'll talk about in a minute, he never was able to get enough funding, but he was able to get people to invest in this and not just private citizens, but again, government contributions were a big part. For example, the uh, New York government granted William Love 30,000 acres, basically 50 square miles for the project, which was the largest tract granted in New York history, at least up to the time, and, and may still, in fact, be. But regardless, a huge, huge investment of land on the part of, of New York, the New York government. So as I said, Love was able to raise money for the project, but he just never could raise enough. And why was this? You know, one theory is he was the swindler I mentioned. He was perhaps pocketing a lot of the money and only spending as much as he needed to at least show the project was moving forward, although albeit very slowly moving forward. And the swindler theory is supported by his uh, long absences from Niagara Falls. He would disappear to raise money, sometimes even allegedly going to London on fundraising trips, although a lot of people say there's really no evidence to support him ever leaving the country during this time. And uh, he might have just been throwing the money in suitcases and, and going elsewhere to spend it and then coming back for more. Regardless, whether he was a swindler, or he was a naive dreamer, or some combination of the two, the project he was pursuing was incredibly complex and incredibly costly. And he's just was something where he was never going to raise enough money, whether he was a swindler or not, to uh, ever get it to completion. So spoiler alert, uh, the city was never built. Uh, the canal that would power it, that we'll talk about in a minute, was barely built. 
And he skipped town in 1897, never to be at least seen in the Niagara Falls area again, maybe with a uh, suitcase full of money, we'll never know. After Niagara Falls, he allegedly got involved in a gold mining scheme in Canada and took up residence in a place called Rat Portage, Ontario, which for those who subscribe to the swindler theory, a very fitting location for a swindler to end up, Rat Portage. He disappeared thereafter only to pop up again in the 1930s when he started writing articles about the need for public works projects to end the depression and even went so far as to write President Hoover directly about his ideas to end the depression. Uh, that, uh, you know, whether Hoover paid attention to any of that is, isn't known, but uh, William Love certainly fell off the face of the earth after his last, uh, last gasp in the 1930s. Now the city he wanted to build it was literally called Model City. And he wanted it to be the model city of the world. He, he wanted it to, I think this is a direct quote, be, quote, the most perfect city in existence. So, you know, he wasn't ambitious at all. And this city was going to be a utopian metropolis. I mean, he was envisioning a city of two million residents. That would be the greatest manufacturing city in the United States. Every home and business would have electricity, they'd have telephone service, natural gas hookups, treated water, and even sewer hookups. So, I mean, if you think about that, how ambitious that is, 1890s, United States of America, you know, New York City, Philadelphia, the greatest cities in the country at the time did not have these things consistently and yet every resident, every business in William Love's model city was going to have these amenities. He also was planning to offer free land to businesses. And we'll talk about that in a minute. That was sort of the bait to uh, get businesses to come to the area and, and settle in his city. He wanted rent controls to keep rents low for the workers. He wanted profit sharing between the businesses and the workers. He envisioned a city that had low congestion. In other words, the city would be have enough land area and be so well planned that it would be spread out, that you wouldn't have urban sprawl or cities on you know, or buildings on top of each other and uh, run down you know, tenements like you would find in other major cities in the United States at the time and in, in the world at the time. There would be ample park space. There would be public schools. And in keeping with the temperance movement, which was a very uh, powerful movement at the time and ultimately would lead to prohibition, this would be a city where no alcohol would be allowed. So this was truly this utopian, progressive dream of a city where everything, as William Love said, would be perfect. But he had to get people there. He had to get businesses there. And as I said a minute ago, one of the baits, one of the baits he used to get folks to come was this free land. He was going to offer free land. And the free land was, was good because it would support some of these initiatives that he sought, such as keeping rents low. So if the businesses didn't have to pay for their land, they shouldn't have to charge much for the rent. 
they'd have more money. This would also help support his profit sharing enterprise he wanted between these businesses and the workers. So the free land was one of the baits. The other bait was free hydroelectric power to all businesses and all homes. Obviously, one benefit of that was it's free. The other benefit was it's clean. It, it's, it's essentially non-polluting or low-polluting, which was uh, different, obviously, than, than the heavily polluted metropolitan areas that were relying were primarily on things like coal for energy production at the time. Well, why did he choose Niagara Falls? What was so special about Niagara Falls? The Niagara River is well-suited for producing hydroelectricity, and it was already being used at the time by some manufacturers and businesses to do this. So it was a common-sense location for a major hydroelectric undertaking. The other reason why William Love chose Niagara Falls is because of limitations at the time regarding electric current. At the time, direct electric current or DC current as we know it was in use. And the problem with DC current is it can't be transported over long distances. So you need to be very close to where you're generating the electricity. And hence, you had to be close to Niagara Falls, the Niagara River, where this power was going to be generated. And that's why you had to have your city located in the Niagara Falls area. How they were going to generate it is interesting, but before we get to that, just a little bit of geography orientation for those who aren't familiar with the area. The Niagara River flows north, and it connects Lake Erie to Lake Ontario. So Lake Erie is to the south. Lake Ontario is to the north. The Niagara River flows between the two and connects them. Buffalo, New York is the starting point of the river, it's where Lake Erie flows. It becomes the Niagara River, if you will. About halfway up the Niagara River, it takes a 90 degree turn to the left, flows about five miles, goes over Niagara Falls, then takes an immediate right-hand turn and then flows straight north to Lake Ontario. What Love's plan was, is he was gonna dig a seven mile long canal that would divert water from the Niagara River about five miles upstream from Niagara Falls. At that point, I described about that halfway point where the river takes the 90 degree turn to the left. And the water that he diverted, it would bypass the true Niagara Falls, the, the, the natural wonder we're all familiar with, and it would flow overland until it flowed over about a 300 foot escarpment, a long steep slope, where it would be fed into the hydroelectric turbines in Model City and generate the hydroelectricity necessary to power all these businesses and all these homes that would be located uh, in the sprawling two million uh, person populated city that William Love envisioned. The canal, once it flowed through Model City, would then re-enter the uh, Niagara River, about six or seven miles south of Lake Ontario. Love broke ground on the canal on May 23rd, 1894. 
And the work on the canal and on the city itself would continue on and off for about three years until Love eventually ran out of money. He couldn't get any more investors or he had you know, sp- spent all the money that he had swindled from folks, whichever version of the story you uh, subscribe to. One of the biggest obstacles to the project from the cost perspective was Love triggered a land boom in the area. Of course, everybody knew about Love's plan. I mean, it was all over the newspapers. It was this national story. You had the New York government supporting it. The public supported it. Private investors, at least for a time, were supporting it. So everybody knew he needed land, and he needed lots of land. And even the land he was receiving, for example, from the state government, that 30,000 acres I mentioned previously, well, he didn't just get that land. He, in essence, received a grant of that land, but he still needed to buy it from whoever owned it, etc. And he just didn't have the money to do it because before he came to town, the cost of one acre of land was about $50. In the midst of his project, the land costs soared. And so there were some instances where one acre cost $1,000. Now, the average was probably close to around 500 but it just goes to show you how the cost of land had just skyrocketed because of Love's need for land to have his canal built, to have his city built. There also was a depression in 1893, an economic depression that was still being felt in the country. And some of the reluctance of folks to invest in Love's project was attributed to this, that that folks were really seeking investments at the time that were a safe return on their money and not risky. And obviously from what we've talked about thus far, I think risky is a good description of Love's project, at least from certainly an investment standpoint. Another factor that uh, didn't help at all was that around the same time, Tesla, the scientist Tesla, not the car company, discovered alternating electric currents. So AC current, the, the electric current that you know, we all use today. And what's so great about AC current is that unlike DC current, AC current can be transported over long distances. And what this meant was you no longer needed to put your factories and your homes and and cities, et cetera, close to where you're generating the electricity. You could now generate electricity at one point and transport at great distances to another point. So the need to move to Niagara Falls where you had this excellent source in the Niagara River for producing hydroelectric power, well, it could still be used for that purpose, but you didn't need to have a city there because you didn't need to have the city close to the source of power since you had AC current now. And then the last nail in the coffin was probably the Burton Act of 1907. So after Love skipped town in 1897, his project still lingered on for about a decade. There were different groups of folks who tried to jumpstart it and would do a little more work on it, and they would run out of money, much like Love did. 
But in 1907, as I said, the Burton Act was passed by Congress, and the Burton Act prohibits diversions, at least additional diversions, I should say, of water from Niagara Falls. So what this means is that the canal that was going to be the, the, the heart of Model City, you know, that was going to generate this electricity that was going to power the homes and the businesses, well, it couldn't be built anymore because it would have diverted water from the Niagara River, which the Burton Act made illegal. So that was the end of Love's plan. His legacy is that he did build a little bit of the canal. He built a stretch of canal that was a little less than a mile long. It was about 80 feet wide and 15 feet deep. It uh, didn't get used for anything. It wasn't actually connected to the Niagara River. It did eventually fill with water and folks, local folks, would use it as a swimming hole in the summertime and use it as a skating rink in the wintertime. So it basically became a, a recreational facility, if you will, until about the 1920s. And that's when the city of Niagara Falls began using the canal as a landfill. In 1942, it was purchased by the Hooker Chemical Company, who used it to dispose of approximately 20,000 tons of drummed hazardous waste they had filled it up by 1953, so Hooker Chemical, in keeping with the times, they covered it up with dirt, and they uh, sold it to the city. Sold it to the city for $1. Now, the city was fully aware of the, the chemicals Hooker had placed in the ditch. It was even something that was memorialized in the deed, but that didn't stop the city from developing the area and from roughly 1953 to 1970, a blue-collar neighborhood of about 100 homes and even a school had been built on and around the former landfill. It was in 1976 that the real problems that lead to the Love Canal, we all know about the toxic waste dump Love Canal, started occurring. This is when waste from these drums that Hooker Chemical had buried started escaping from the drums and leaching out of the ground, leaching into people's basements, into their homes. And this is also the point when soon thereafter, most Americans, any American who watched the news or read the newspaper had heard the name Love Canal and knew it was a toxic waste dump. So that's probably a good point to stop. In part two, we're gonna cover the environmental contamination I just alluded to that made Love Canal a national news story and ultimately led to the passage of CERCLA. Thanks for listening to part one, and I hope you'll join us for part two. Mm -hmm.